Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13. We have two chapters left in Zechariah chapter 13. And then Lord willing, this next Sunday, we'll wrap up with chapter 14. But this morning we're in Zechariah chapter 13. We'll look at the, the whole chapter. It's not too long compared to some of the other ones. It's page 751. If you're using one of our hardback Bibles there. It'd be helpful if you've got the word open. <clears throat> There's also a sort of a bare bones outline on the back of the worship guide. It has the main points if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. <clears throat> uh, I have a friend whose parents own a, a beautiful historic house in Shelbyville, Kentucky. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Shelbyville, it's south of Louisville. And uh, his parents, they have this great house. They, they have uh, lots of, of pretty cool antique stuff in the house. And one thing they have is this beautiful antique couch that's in sort of a sitting room. The first time we ever visited that couch or visited that house, we sat on the couch and our friend Rob was telling us how it was a special thing that we were allowed to sit on that couch, which I had never heard before. And he said, yeah, that couch, you're not allowed to sit on it until you're 18. So when you're 17 and younger, the rule in our house is you're not allowed to, to sit on that couch. And, and the reason that they did that is they didn't want the couch to get messed up. It was, I think it was a family antique and it was an heirloom. And so they wanted to, to keep the couch uh, okay. So that the kind of person that could mess up the couch, children, weren't allowed on, on the couch. Well, the prophet Zechariah he keeps coming back to two main themes in this book, two promises, which are God is ultimately going to punish his enemies. And second, he's ultimately going to save his people. And, and when God saves his people, he'll put them in the heavenly Jerusalem. We've seen that theme go throughout the book. And, and that'll be a place that he has made perfect for his people. But the reason heaven will be perfect is because there won't be any sin there. That's the thing that's not allowed in heaven. Sin is put out. Heaven is only heaven because all sin will be kept out. So hear the word of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 13. We're told, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. Well, the way our passage begins in verse one 
is with this phrase, on that day. And that's a phrase we saw several times in, in chapter 12 that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's a phrase that we'll see several times in our passage next week in chapter 14. This phrase, on that day. In fact, it, it shows up 20 times in the book of Zechariah. That's a lot, especially for a, a, a minor prophet. And, and 17 of those times are in the final three chapters of this book. That day, or uh, that phrase, on that day. 17 times in these last three chapters. Now, whenever a word or phrase shows up that often in a passage of Scripture, we should take note of it. When God does that, it's the equivalent as if uh, uh, you would underline something in an email or put it in italics, right? He repeats it. So what is the Lord talking about when he says, on that day? He's talking about what in a lot of other Old Testament books is called the day of the Lord. That's what that day is. It's the day of the Lord. And, and the day of the Lord is the day when the Lord would come to bring ultimate judgment to his enemies and ultimate salvation to his people. It's the thing that Zechariah continues to talk about throughout his book. That's the day of the Lord. And that day, it, it hasn't yet come. We know this. God hasn't yet returned to fully and finally judge his enemies and fully and finally save his people. It's still in the future. And that future day is what Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 are all about. And our passage this morning, chapter 13, is about what awaits God's people on the other side of the day of the Lord. In, in other words, in heaven. What is it that we have waiting on us in heaven after the day of the Lord? And we're going to see four things in particular. Again, they're listed in the worship guide. First thing we'll see is there won't be any idolatry in heaven. Second thing we'll see is there won't be any false prophecy in heaven. Third, and terrifying, most people in this life won't end up in heaven. And then finally, God will get you to heaven if you're trusting in the shepherd who was struck for you. Those are the four main things we're going to see. So first thing, there won't be any idolatry in heaven. Look at verse 2. And on that day, the day of the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. So one thing God will do on the day of the Lord, he'll rid all idolatry from the land he's preparing for his people. He will be sure there is no idolatry in heaven. Now, remember, an idol, that's just a fake God, right? It's giving worship to anything other than the one true God of the Bible, the Father of Jesus Christ. So ever since Adam and Eve brought sin into the world in Genesis 3, mankind has been inventing fake gods. It's something we're really, really good at, just naturally. We have this propensity to create idols. So we saw one of them early on in Tim and Mark preaching through 1 Samuel. The Philistines had Dagon. It was this statue that they said was a god. Obviously, it's not the real god. That was an idol. So, so why is that? Why is it that mankind creates fake gods. Well, it's because we're rebels. So apart from Christ, before you knew Jesus, you were in full rebellion against the one true God. Our, our nature is to withhold worship from him and give it to other things. Now, in our culture, that can certainly happen with literal fake gods, like the Muslim god, Allah, or the, the Hindu god, Vishnu. But, but most fake gods in our culture are simply created things that people choose to prize more highly. 
than the one true God. So your neighbors and coworkers and family members that aren't Christians, most likely they're not worshiping an actual fake God that they would say, yes, this is my God. No, more likely it's that they're prizing a created thing or created things more highly than they are the one true God. So, so with that definition, with that understanding, money and possessions can be an idol. Physical pleasure can be an idol. Entertainment can be an idol. Hobbies, recreation can be an idol. Family can be an idol. Every good thing around you can be a potential idol. Now, now that's not that thing's fault, right? So it's not college football's fault that we can make it an idol. No, it's, it's our heart's fault. Because of our sinful hearts, idolatry is around every corner. Any good thing we can try to make into a God thing. It's around every corner. And that's a problem for us because idolatry is in many ways the chief sin. In many ways, it's the worst sin. It's, it's certainly significant, right, that it leads off the list of the Ten Commandments. That's significant. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first thing the Lord says. Or the way the law is summed up for God's people in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, what's called the Shema. There he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's saying the same thing. Hey, you guys remember, there's only one God, and you should only worship him. So, so it's a significant sin to give worship to, to something else. And that temptation to idolatry, it didn't go away when you became a Christian, did it? That would have been great. But that didn't go away. The temptation is still there. Listen to what Paul tells the Christians at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. It was part of our congregational reading this morning. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He's talking about the Old Testament uh, Israelites. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So after the exodus out of Egypt, Israel had made an idol out of recreation and entertainment. There it is. That's what they were doing, and, and it's called idolatry. And Paul knew Christians would be tempted to have that same idol, entertainment and recreation. So do you struggle with that idol? That's idolatry. It certainly can be. Well, listen to what he tells the Christians in Ephesus about idolatry. This is Ephesians 5, verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, so the covetous person, Paul says, is an idolater. The, the person who sees somebody else's stuff or somebody else's situation and says, ah, oh, I wish with my heart that was my stuff and my situation. Have you ever done that? I do that. That's idolatry, Paul says. In fact, again, for as many good things as you see, those are all potential idols. And, and it's good to stop and recognize that's kind of exhausting, isn't it? When you think about it that way, it's exhausting being surrounded by so many potential idols, things that we're tempted to make into gods. We had a stomach bug in our house uh, a few weeks ago. And one thing about that, it's not just tiring 
because of what you're actually having to do as children throw up, although I will say we can glorify the Lord. This is gross, but you guys can handle it. Every kid hit the trash can. It's the first time that's ever happened, and we were so thankful. Anyway, praise God. But it wasn't just tiring because of that. It's tiring because as a parent, anytime you hear a kid cough, anytime you see the baby roll over, you're thinking, here it comes. Somebody else is about to throw up. You're thinking it's around every corner. Well, in, in this sinful flesh, in this sinful world, idolatry is around every corner. It's exhausting when we actually stop and think about it. But in heaven, it won't be. Idolatry won't be there. Verse 2 again, And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. That language of somebody's name being cut off, that was the language that was used when an entire family line was extinguished. When they said, okay, we're going to take the lives of these men, and then the family name won't go on. The name will be gone forever. Well, in heaven, idolatry of all kinds will be extinguished. It will be gone. Now, that's not because every, every potential idol will be kept out of heaven. No, heaven is full of good things, right? It's because your heart will be changed. My heart will be changed. We'll have a heart that only worships God and isn't tempted to do otherwise. And in that way, every idol will be kept out. Revelation 22.15 says that, that outside the walls of heaven are the idolaters. So idolatry will be kept out of heaven. And, and hopefully that's an incredible thought to you. If you're a Christian, you're headed for a place where you will never even be tempted to worship something other than God ever again. Can you even imagine that? That's an incredible thing. In fact, your idolatry will be so far away from you, it's like you won't even remember it. So this, this is something that's wild. When we were driving down from Maine, well, I drove the truck straight here from Maine. Marie and the kids and her mom drove to Kentucky. They drove through upstate New York and they stopped at Niagara Falls, right? Niagara Falls, big deal, something that stands out to you. So in the van yesterday, the kids are talking about Niagara Falls and Hayes doesn't remember. It was only a year and a half ago, right? For the rest of us, we, we remember. But when you're little, that's, that's a long time. It's like ancient past. Well, what we're being told here in Zechariah is when we're in heaven, it's like we won't even remember how to worship a fake God. That's how new our hearts will be. That's how clean we will be. We won't even remember how to do it. Verse 2, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they will be remembered no more. So there won't be any idolatry in heaven. Praise God. Now, now remember what Jesus tells us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 10, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a, that should be a regular prayer of ours, right? We're praying, Lord, the way things are in heaven, make that that way in my life now, even while I'm on the earth. So, so one application here, pray that you would more and more turn away from idols in this life, that, that your life would be more and more conformed in that way to the way it'll be in heaven. Pray, pray you give your full heart only to the one true God and Father of Jesus Christ. And if you're a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, pray that for your fellow church members. 
That's, so that directory, if you pray through members, oh, it's so easy. Sometimes we think, oh, if I'm going to pray for somebody, I need to pray four minutes and I need to know everything that's going on in their life. No, you really don't. In fact, the most important prayers we can pray for one another are the prayers that would stand regardless of what's going on in our lives. Prayers like this, Lord, please keep Scott from idolatry. Help him be more and more recreated in the gospel where he'll only worship you. That's a good prayer to pray for one another. Well, we certainly look forward to the day when our heart will finally be idol-free for all eternity. So there won't be any idolatry in heaven. But the Lord, he doesn't just single out the sin of idolatry. Through Zechariah, he, he goes on to tell the people that there won't be any false prophecy in heaven either. Look at the second sentence of verse 2. And also, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Now, we know the Lord's not talking about removing all the prophets. He's talking specifically about false prophets. We know that because of verse 3. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. So we're talking about false prophets here. People that say God's given them a word, but, but he really hasn't. And see, that's what a prophet is. A prophet is just someone who is supernaturally given God's word so that they can then give that word to the people. So Zechariah was a prophet. Here's the first verse of chapter one in Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. So God supernaturally gave his word to Zechariah. That's, that's how prophecy works. But just like any good thing with, with prophecy, there were knockoffs, right? There, there were fake prophets. Look again at the way it's characterized in the middle of verse 3. You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. There were fake prophets who said, hey, everybody, I've got a word from God, but it was a lie. It wasn't really a word from God. And in fact, the, the law covenant that God gave to Israel from Mount Sinai, he talks about this there. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1 and following, this is where we're told, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. We should pause there. This is incredible. He's talking about false prophets, guys that are not from the Lord, gals that are not from the Lord. But did you see what he just said? He said, if somebody comes to you and they give uh, a promise, a sign or a wonder, and that sign or wonder comes to pass, isn't that something? There are false prophets who could make predictions that came to pass. The sign came true. But listen to the rest of it. So he gives you a wonder or a sign that comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So God knew there would be people among his people that would rise up and say they had a word from the Lord when really they didn't. It was fake. And they could have even been really compelling. They may have even been able to do some sort of supernatural work, but they're still a false prophet. And the way to know they're a false prophet is if they're telling you to turn away from God and to turn away from his word. And it wasn't just a, a problem for God's people in the Old Testament. 
listen to the instruction that Peter gives New Testament churches in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Now false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So until Jesus returns, there will be false prophets. There will be false teachers, people who say they're speaking for God, but teach doctrine that's opposed to the clear meaning of Scripture. And, and that's a horrible thing. In fact, our passage shows how horrible it is by linking up false prophecy with idolatry. Those two things are, are related in our passage. I don't think that's a mistake. I think the Lord through Zechariah is showing that idolatry and false teaching are connected. He made the same connection back in chapter 10, verse 2. If you've got a Bible open, flip a page over, chapter 10, verse 2. And that's where he says this. He says, for the household gods, so the idols, for the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. So see, false prophets and, and idols feed one another. Those two things work together, and it makes sense. If a, pro if a prophet isn't speaking for the Lord and pointing toward the Lord, then they're pointing toward a fake God, a fake idol. False prophets, false teachers, they lead people to idolatry. And that's the main reason why false teaching is so incredibly dangerous. Jesus treated it as really dangerous. Remember what he says to the scribes and Pharisees as they taught falsely. This is Matthew 23, 15. He says, you guys travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So Jesus is saying these false teachers are hurting those who listen to their teaching because they're turning people away from the Lord. Or think about what Paul tells the Galatian Christians in Galatians 5. He says, if they listen to the false teachers, if they take their advice about circumcision in particular, they'll be severed from Christ. So those false teachers were hurting those who listened to their teaching because they were turning people away from the Lord. False teaching is dangerous. And that's why as Christians, we need to be vigilant to identify it, to, to process teaching that we hear, to, to test it by the word of God. And this is one reason why the Lord has given elders to his churches. So if somebody hands off a book to you or a devotional and says, hey, this is a great Christian book, and you've never heard of the author, you could reach out to one of the elders and say, hey, have you guys ever heard of this author? Between the four of us, there's a good chance that, that one of us will have heard of him, heard of her. Or somebody commends somebody's sermons to you or podcasts. There are so many purported Christian teachers, and a lot of them aren't good. So take advantage of that, having elders and, and saying, hey, have you heard of this author? Is this author good? When Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he tells them part of their job is to keep an eye out for fierce wolves who will speak twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So that's what false teaching does. It's it's dangerous. But praise God, just like idolatry, false prophets will one day be held accountable for their teaching. It, it'll happen on that future day of the Lord, what Zechariah keeps referring to as that day. 
On, on the day of God's judgment, every false prophet will finally be held accountable. Look at verse 3. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. So that the false prophet will one day pay for his sins. The imagery that's used here is, is the image of his parents piercing him. Okay, now what's going on there? It's kind of an odd way to say it. Well, the Lord's probably pointing back to uh, Deuteronomy 13, which is part of the passage we read about prof a false prophecy a second ago. In Deuteronomy 13, God makes it clear that false prophecy is a capital crime. And one thing he points out is, if a member of your family, Israel, is taking part in false prophecy, they're saying, I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord, but they aren't, and they're calling other people to turn away from the Lord, then, then his own family should take part in bringing him to justice. That's intense, isn't it? He's leaning on that here for the imagery. He says, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. And this is a good reminder for those of us who are parents, those of us who are parents and grandparents, as Christians, our loyalty to the Lord outranks loyalty even to our own children. Our loyalty to the Lord outranks loyalty even to our own children. God expected these parents in ancient Israel to turn in their adult children who were telling lies about the Lord and calling others to believe those lies. Don't forget what Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So remember, as a Christian, you're a child of God before you're a parent to your children. You're a child of God before you're a parent to your children. So your loyalty to him outranks everything. That's a good question for us to think about every now and then as, as parents. Do I operate that way? Is it clear that my loyalty to the Lord outstrips my loyalty to even my own children? So, so a practical question. Are there times when, when you're confident the Lord wants your child to know something but you don't tell him or her that thing because you're worried how they'll react. So are, are you nervous about telling God's truth to your children? Well, God called on parents in Israel to stand up for him when, when their adult, adult children turned to, to false prophecy. And here God's pointing forward to a day when all false prophets will finally be punished for their sins. They'll be pierced. The book of Revelation uses the same imagery for final judgment, talking about the sword of the Lord that'll, that'll vanquish his enemies. But it's, it's not just that on the day of the Lord, all the false prophets and false teachers will be punished. They'll also be faced with the shame that their sin merits. Our text really points this out. Look at verse four. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And we need a little cultural background here. A lot of what I just read, you're probably thinking, wait, what? What is this talking about? What's this mean? Well, think, think about the cloak there. He will not put on a hairy cloak. Well, most of the prophets, that's the way they dressed. They wore animal fur. So Elijah, you might remember he did. Elisha, 
Remember in the New Testament, John the Baptist? That was standard clothing for a lot of the prophets, including fake prophets. But, but on the day of the Lord, on the day of judgment, these false prophets will finally be ashamed of their sin, where they will want to take those clothes off rather than pretending that they were a prophet. They'd rather tell people, no, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a farmer. I, I didn't do this thing. I'm just a worker of the soil, they say. See, they'll finally be ashamed of their sin. The part in verse 6 about someone asking false prophets about the wounds on his back, this is where we see again the connection between false prophecy and idolatry. Most of the fake prophets took part in idolatry, and the idolatry around the nations, around Israel, a lot of times they would whip their own back. That was part of the worship of those fake gods. They would cut themselves even. But on the day of the Lord, when, when they're finally ashamed of their sin, they'll deny those wounds came from their idol worship. They'll say, no, I, I got this in a domestic dispute. This is something that happened in a friend's house. And again, the point's the same. On the day of the Lord, the false prophet will finally be ashamed of his sin. And isn't that encouraging to think about? That finally, a day's coming when all of God's enemies will finally be ashamed of their sin, of their wrongdoing. It's, it's always discouraging when there's a trial. There's overwhelming evidence that this person's guilty. The jury finds them guilty. The judge is going to convict this person, and, and he gets to stand before the judge and make a statement, and he continues to proclaim his innocence, even though the whole world knows that he's guilty. Well, on the day of judgment, God's enemies won't be able to profess their innocence. It'll be clear they're guilty. They'll be ashamed of their sin, including the ones who have misled people with, with their dangerous false teaching. But praise God, just like idolatry, none of that false prophecy will be allowed in heaven. Middle of verse 2, And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. There, he's, he's probably making it clear, it's not the Holy Spirit that gave them the words to say. It, it was a spirit from Satan. It was a spirit of uncleanness. And they'll be kept out of heaven. And, and that means you'll finally be in a situation where, where you don't have to evaluate the words those around you say about the Lord. You won't have to sift through it to try to figure out what's true and, and what's false. You might remember the Bereans in Acts 17. They're commended because they searched the scriptures to be sure what Paul is saying is, is true. Well, the Bereans won't have to do that in heaven. Every word you hear about the Lord in heaven will be true. There won't be any false teaching. So, so look forward to that day. But in the meantime, Pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And in particular, pray that our church would be preserved and protected from false teaching, from false prophecy. Pray that inside of our gatherings, inside of our membership, we'd only say true things about the Lord. But praise God, one day we'll be in a place where there won't be any more false teaching. Well, the, the third thing we see here is a, a shorter point. It really sets up uh, sets us up to appreciate the final point. The third thing, most people will be kept out of heaven. So not only will idolatry and false prophecy be kept out, most people will be kept out of heaven. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left 
alive. Okay, so let's get a, a handle on this imagery here. The sheep God's talking about, those are his people. In particular, the nation of Judah, which remember that was the southern kingdom of Israel. Those are the folks that have been brought back to the promised land who Zechariah is prophesying to. So the sheep are God's people. And, and God says he's going to get rid of their shepherd, which was a curse on folks in this culture. They would have understand that really clearly. Sheep can't survive without a shepherd, right? There, there's too many, uh, too many other animals. The sheep separate and scatter. There's, there's no shepherd there to, to protect them, to guide them. So it's only going to be a bad thing for them. So in the middle of verse 7, he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's like a death sentence for sheep to not have a shepherd. And death is exactly what God says is coming for the people of Judah, at least most of them. Look at verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. There's this great story about uh, Mike Ditka, who was the coach of the Chicago Bears when they had that great run in the 80s, and they had that amazing defense. Well, Mike Ditka, he gets there, and he realizes really quick there's a lot of dead weight on this team. A lot of these guys are hurting us. They're not going to hang around. And he gives this speech, and the Super Bowl winning team, so many of these guys went back to this speech they heard three years before. Basically, Ditka gets the team together, and he says, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The good news is, in three years, we're going to win a Super Bowl. The bad news is half of you aren't going to be around to see it. And that sort of struck fear into those guys' hearts. And sure enough, it, it was about that. They won a Super Bowl in three years, but half the guys initially in that locker room weren't there. That's the kind of thing God's saying here in verse 8. Particularly, he's telling Judah, two-thirds of them won't make it into the promised land. They'll perish, he says. That other phrase where he says they'll be cut off, it's a single Hebrew word. We talked about it in our class this morning. Karat, the word for cut. It's the same word used up in verse 2 when he says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. So in the same way, idolatry will be kept out of heaven. The Lord is saying two-thirds of you, Judah, will be kept out of heaven. And the main point is straightforward. The majority of Judah is not going to end up in heaven. And that's not surprising for us to hear as Christians that the Apostle Paul, he's told us the same thing in Romans 9, verse 27. He's quoting Isaiah there, and he says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as much as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So there's tons and tons of ethnic Israelites, but only a small portion, Paul says, quoting Isaiah, will be saved. And in Zechariah, he's already highlighted this truth a few times in this book by using that same term, remnant. God will do a good work for the remnant, for a small portion of his people. But it won't come to all of Israel. It's what we see in verse 8 of our passage. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. And if that's how it works with God's Old Testament people, then we shouldn't expect it to work any different for the world at large. It's like Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called to salvation. Many are called, but few are chosen. So most people will be kept out of heaven. But here's the question. 
The question is, why just most people? Why just most people? All people are sinners. No person has loved God perfectly all the time and loved other people perfectly all the time. So, so the question really isn't, why is only one-third of Judah saved in verse 8? The question is, why is one-third of Judah saved, right? The, the question for us this morning shouldn't be, how come my child isn't saved or my neighbor or my sibling? The question is, how am I saved? How, how is anybody else in this room saved? Well, the answer is in the very first verse of our passage, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It's our final point this morning. God will get, to, get you to heaven if you're trusting in the shepherd who was struck for you. So in verse 1, God provides a symbolic fountain that sinners can step into and, and come out clean. Their sin was, was washed away. But here's what we need to understand. That fountain had to be paid for. So I remember conversation. I heard my dad say this so many times growing up. So I'd be talking about something and I would tell dad it was free. I'd say, no, that thing's free. And dad would say the same thing. You might say, your parents may have said to you, that thing's not free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And dad wasn't saying that you're going to have to pay for it somehow. But what he was saying was, hey, somebody paid for that, right? There's no such thing as, as a free lunch. Well, the fountain in verse 1 that's representing sinners having their sins washed away, that fountain is not free. Somebody had to pay for it. So, so God, he, he can't just pretend he hasn't seen your sin. To use the imagery of Jeremiah 13, 23, he can't look at a leopard and pretend it doesn't have spots. God can't do that. No, work has to be done to get rid of those spots. And someone had to provide the fountain to wash off your sins. And we see that good work described to us down in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, let's see what this prophecy of verse 7 was ultimately pointing to. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning. Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus quotes verse 7 from our passage in Zechariah. And, and who does he say the struck shepherd is? Well, who's the one who has to be raised up after he's struck? It's Jesus. Jesus is the struck shepherd. And where was he struck? Well, it was the cross. That's when the disciples scattered, just like this prophecy predicted, when Jesus was arrested and crucified. Now, now why was he struck? Is it because of anything he did? Of course not. Jesus never sinned ever. Look at the way God describes him in verse 7 of our passage in Zechariah. God calls him my shepherd and the man who stands next to me. The imagery is that this shepherd is on God's side. He's righteous. He's a good guy. He's God's shepherd. He's with God. 
And we know that to be the case. Jesus has never, ever sinned. So, so an innocent man, the Son of God, was struck on the cross. That's a pretty wild thought when you stop and think about it. He didn't deserve it. He was perfectly innocent, but he was struck on the cross. But, but there's something even crazier. The, the crazier part is, who is it who struck him? Because there's a, there's a way in which it was the Romans and the crowd of the Jews that were saying, no, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. But see, behind all of that stands the one who had ultimately determined that Christ would go to the cross. Look again at verse 7 in our passage. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God calls on the sword to strike Jesus. God is the one who in the middle of verse 7 says, strike the shepherd. He's the one who through the cross struck Jesus. That's why on the cross Jesus cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now why in the world would our good God punish his good son? Well, it's because the son was paying the penalty for our sins. By way of the cross, God struck Jesus so he doesn't have to strike you. That's the gospel. He struck Jesus so he doesn't have to strike you. His work on the cross purchased the fountain in verse 1 that cleanses from sin and uncleanness. And as a Christian, you've already been submerged in that fountain. And, and as a result, your sinful record ha has been washed away. It happened the very first moment you trusted in Christ. And that means that you, right now, are destined for heaven. This place we've been talking about in our passage. Because you're trusting in the shepherd who was struck for you, God will get you to heaven. Now, as we close, that doesn't mean that in this life you will walk a perfect straight line from here to heaven. We know that. We've already seen we're all sinners. But God will ultimately protect your faith in Christ, which is what gets someone into heaven. He'll keep your hand tight around Jesus. So let's think about what, what brought on Jesus's quote from our passage in Matthew 26. Why did he quote Zechariah there? It's because of the confidence, the overconfidence of the disciples. They said they would always be faithful. But Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, us, will be scattered. We all fall short, right? We all fall short of Jesus. There are times when, at least in the moment, we love some created thing more than Christ. The idolatry we talked about earlier, we do that. There's times when we lose our temper. There's times where we grumble and, and complain. Jesus says, you will all fall away. But remember what he tells Peter in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now look at the way Zechariah prophesies about it, or prophesies about it in verse 9 of our passage. He says, and I will put this third, this is the Lord, I will put this third that are saved into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So if you're a Christian, you're not a, a perfect piece of silver. 
You're not yet a perfect piece of gold. You've got blemishes, but God is refining you, isn't he? That's the picture we're given here. How's he do that? Well, he does it through fire, verse 9 says. That means God refines you through difficulty. He refines you through temptation and hardship. But, but what's the outcome of this refining? What is God after through our hardship in this life? We see it in the next phrase. So he says, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. So for us as believers, difficulty in this life has a good purpose. Isn't that encouraging to remember? Difficulty in this life for the believer has a good purpose. It's to help you more and more recognize your need for Jesus. As you are tested more often, that will lead you to call upon his name and he will answer you. It helps you to recognize more and more your need for Jesus. That refining produces people who will call upon God's name. And, and isn't that so different from the way the world and, and other religions think? You know, the world would think, oh, I bet the longer you're a Christian, the less you need Jesus. Seems kind of intuitive, right? Especially when the world thinks about it. Religion is just being a good person, right? Learning to do good. So they, they would think about it probably the same way as a job. Okay, I bet you need your supervisor less and less the longer that you're in your particular role. I bet you need Jesus less the longer you go on in the Christian life. But see, the gospel says the exact opposite. The longer you live the Christian life, the more you realize how much you really need Jesus. And the main way the Lord teaches us that throughout the Christian life is with the fire of suffering. So, so when you have to battle against your sinful flesh tomorrow, that's God helping you to see your need for Christ. When, when you go through some significant suffering next month, that's God helping you to see Jesus is all you've got. He's refining your faith in Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus, then, then you're part of the group that the Lord says shall be left alive. You're one of the ones about whom God will say, they are my people, like the end of verse 9 says. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So if you're trusting in the shepherd that was struck for you, that means God has decided to call you my people. An incredible thing. His, his care for you in the Christian life began in verse 1 when he washed you with the water of Jesus' sacrifice. It extends throughout the process of your life as he refines you like silver in fire. God will get you to heaven. And in that place, you and everyone else will be perfectly refined, never having to worry about idolatry or false prophecy or any other sin ever again. We'll be with God as his people for all eternity. Praise God for it. Let's pray.